Welcome to another episode of the Trees and Lines podcast. Today, Tej and I will be speaking with Dr. Carolyn Grace Mahan, a professor at Penn State University and a leading researcher in the study of the effects of management on plant communities and wildlife occupying our utility rights of ways. Dr. Mahan leads the Gamelands 33 research project, which has guided our industry for 65 years. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy. Well, welcome, Carolyn. I really appreciate your joining us for the podcast. Uh, exciting year, I believe, in some of the things you do. Uh, anxious to talk to you about that. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and about the research there at Gamelands 33. Well, it's nice to be here, Phil. M- my name is Carolyn Mahan. I'm a professor at Penn State. I'm a professor of biology and environmental studies, and I research a variety of ecological issues include anything from squirrels to these power line rights of way work that I have been working with um, very closely since 2014. Um, The project though, as you know, Phil precludes me and it started in the 1950s. And I'm just one of the latest in a long line of researchers that have worked at State Game Lands 33 here in central Pennsylvania. And what we're trying to understand is how can industry manage habitat under rights of ways to increase biodiversity and and allow wildlife to persist in those types of landscapes? Um, I'm not really clear, to be quite honest, about the very early sources of funding, but but I do know this. I know that industry, the industry, the electric transmission industry, the um, partners um, who help um, manage the, the actual habitat, they have provided funding for the research over the past 65 years. In addition, there have been matching funds um, provided by the universities in which the researchers are located. And and for example, we always have students working on these projects. But as far as securing the funding, I think things have changed in the industry where there is now this growing interest in these community or these societal environmental goals that these industries, the power industry, the habitat management industry, like an Asplung who manages trees, they are interested in dis- in showing that they are um, beholden to the public um, and how that they and how they do habitat management. So I think that is why the interest has moved away from just hunters who are becoming a smaller and smaller part of our population to this overall idea of biodiversity and how habitat is provided for biodiversity, which is the diversity of all living things from plants to insects, to mammals, to birds. And that actually has a more general interest to the public. At least I think it does. And so I would say there has been a very good cooperation and interest from the funders and moving beyond the game species focus. And uh, if I recall, this is by far the longest ongoing research project. Uh, you hit 60 years or you're 65 about 65 years. So we're, we're just passing 65. 65 years. And the research project started when a power line was going through state game lands, which are publicly owned lands here in Pennsylvania. And this power line was going through, was getting constructed in 1950s. And hunters who used the game lands were concerned about the effects of this power line and maintaining the habitat under the power line 
would affect hunting populations. So hunters were concerned that perhaps herbicides needed to control vegetation growth would hurt populations of game animals. So when the project originally started back in the 50s again, the focus was on game species like deer and and, um, eastern cottontails and wild turkey. And we've since expanded that research looking at non-game species, including pollinators and most recently ground beetles. So I know uh, 60 years is a lot of results. Yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of data with this particular project. Yes. So for you personally, what are the big takeaways? The big takeaways for me is that when you manage habitat in these in these human landscapes, there's two objectives. The first objective in this case is, as you often say, Phil, your industry says, is for safety. So there are there are regulators who make sure that the area underneath rights of way are cleared of trees. Cause I, I think your listeners understand that as trees grow up into rights of ways, they can interfere with the transmission of electricity and harm the transmission lines. So you need to ask the question, what is happening with the habitat in terms of the power transmission but then also, how is the habitat managed? Is there a way that we can manage the habitat that it also can improve the landscape for, for wildlife? And my big takeaway is, yes, um, we can manage that landscape for wildlife, particular species of wildlife, particular groups of wildlife, and we can do it successfully. It requires professionalism. It requires um, dedication, and it requires knowledge of the landscape to do it properly, but it can be done. So uh, what's the uh, management strategies you've looked at? You've looked at herbicide use and mowing yeah. and mechanical. So, I, so I'll, I'll, try to explain, I'll try to explain the study design, Phil, because it is one of the Um, It's one of the things that make this site so special from a research perspective. One thing that makes it special is the fact that we have 65 years of data. The other thing that makes it special is if you can picture, it's an almost three-mile length of -of right-of-way. And this is transmission right-of-way. So these are the big towers that carry electricity over long distances. And the right-of-way itself runs through a forested landscape, an Appalachian forest landscape. And the right of way is is about two hundred feet at least in width, so it's a wide it's a wide right of way, and it's it's two miles. And within that two miles, we have replicates of different types of vegetation management strategy. So that's nice. So we have we are able to replicate these management approaches, and the approaches that that have been tested on state game lands thirty three are are hand cutting. So where you just take down the vegetation using chainsaws by hand, um, mowing, you can picture what mowing is, larger mowers and people would use obviously in their yards. And then there's different types of integrated vegetation management approaches that use herbicides. One of the approaches is just high volume herbicide application where it's non-selective. So you just spray the area with herbicide when the plants are getting too high and might interfere with the power lines. But then there are other approaches where that are very selective. And the two selective herbicide approaches that we are looking at is what's called low volume foliar, where non-compatible plants are sprayed, their leaves are sprayed, so they're sprayed during the growing season. 
um, and, and they're sprayed and removed. So if you see like a red oak seedling emerging and it ha you would spray that particular red oak seedling and remove it from the right of way. And we also, the other selective approach is called basal low volume, where instead of just spraying the entire plant, the woody plant is kind of cut and then herbicide is applied directly to the stem. And in my opinion, the basal low volume is the most selective application type of, of habitat management that we perform up on the rights of way. So relate that now to your uh, biodiversity studies or impacts. Okay. So I always have to make this very clear um, to listeners or to, to researchers that I work with. Each technique can promote different types of wildlife. And I'm going to start with hand cutting first, because hand cutting is actually a really great method for developing brushy, woody habitat. And there are species of wildlife that really like brushy, woody habitat. For example, Appalachian cottontails and red-eyed vireos, which is a type of bird. Catbirds, they thrive in that habitat. That habitat, however, is not compatible with rights-of-ways because we just have oak trees that grow up over time and have to be cut. And so it costs a lot of money to maintain it. Okay, so from a biodiversity perspective, if you're managing for those woody vegetation species, it's fine, but it's not compatible with the right-of-way. What we have found, however, is that these selective herbicide approaches they create, instead of that woody vegetation that regrows, the selective herbicide applications create a field-type environment dominated by forbs and low-growing shrubs. So instead of the woody trees, oaks coming back, you have a field of goldenrod and asters and rubus, blackberries coming back, and they support a different assemblage of biodiversity, like native bees and grassland breeding birds, and snakes that need access to sunlight for basking, and rare species of forb plants like yellow loosestrife and woodland lily. So as far as biodiversity goes, all of those approaches that I mentioned do support wildlife, but it's what is most compatible with the, with the power lines and also can support a diverse native community. The, there is one approach that is that is the least beneficial uh, for biodiversity, and that's the non-selective herbicide application. So when herbicides are applied at high rates non-selectively, they remove all vegetation, whether it be woody, woody or forbs or, or forbs. And so of course it reduces the diversity of the, of the native plants in that case. So to tie it again back to biodiversity, the, the selective herbicide approaches promote the most biodiversity that is also compatible with rights of way. Yes, yeah, so from, from a practical perspective, so now like if I, if I was working for the industry, um, I can make conclusions from my research area, which is a Appalachian forest. So I'm not quite sure how, there'd be other challenges managing in other habitats, especially places like the South where they have a very long growing season or the West Coast where they have to deal with these fires. But I, I will talk from our perspective. Um, one of the, the, the greatest costs to this type of approach is the initial, when, you, when, a, when a company initially moves from, let's say they have a mowing regime 
and then they move to a selective herbicide regime. Because what they will have to do is reset the habitat. So they may have to go in and they may have to do a selective herbicide spray at first once and kind of knock back the vegetation. And then it's very important over the next probably five to seven years that you have trained crews that can go in and can target and remove the non-compatible vegetation. So it's all about identifying non-compatible vegetation. And I keep using oak trees. It's because it's a great example in our part of the world and letting the compatible vegetation grow. And sometimes the compatible vegetation is woody vegetation. Things like mountain laurel is compatible. Um, Appalachian, uh, Allegheny, azalea plants, they're compatible. Witch hazel is compatible. So you need to have some level of expertise. But then what we see after about seven years is the habitat now starts to stabilize. So you start to have this more stable environment of shrubs and forbs that you don't need to treat as often. And those plants themselves help keep the non-compatible trees from growing through. So the, so the initial cost can be high. And I think that's one of the issues. One, I would say one of the challenges with this approach is that to start, you have to put in higher investment. But over 60 years, your investment is quite low because now when, um, when the industry comes back to our study sites to treat them, they use very little herbicide because the selective sites have stabilized into this early successional shrub forb habitat that you don't need that much effort to maintain. But the beginning is going to require an investment. Money is related to this in expertise. You need people who can identify the plants properly. Um, So it's an initial investment. My research and, and others' work has shown that after that initial period of time, the costs decline dramatically because you have achieved that early successional native habitat that can be maintained with much lower costs than yearly or um, every other year mowing, for example. So you said seven years. Is that based on, is that three treatments or is that truly seven years? So I, years? what I is would say, Phil, and, and you know, every site is different. But I'll use our, our research for an example, just as I, I, as I notice plants regrowing. In the beginning, if you went in and you were removing woody vegetation, you may have to go every other year, every two years. And, and every two years in the beginning, it might be quite a bit of investment. You might be using quite a bit of herbicide to, re, to reset those plots from mowed or hand cut. But then after that five to seven year period, you need to go back every five years is, is really the rotation that they're following up on State Game Lands 33. They just go back every five years. And in our selective herbicide sites, they spot treat them. So, right, in the beginning, it's going to be much more intensive because you really have to knock back those non-compatible species, species that are non-compatible with the, with the power lines. You have to knock them back to permit the compatible vegetation to fill in and to grow and then help you keep the, com- the non-compatible vegetation from growing. So it does become a partnership with some of these plants. I mean, if you have thick shrub cover or very thick forb cover, like a, a thick cover of goldenrods, for example, those plant communities will help keep 
the non-compatible plants out of your right-of-way. You mentioned that yours is in the uh, Appalachian hardwoods, um, but there's only one green or Gamelands 33. So around, I believe you helped uh, Sonoma State get something started out there in research. But other than that, is the research around the country and how applicable is your research to those areas? Well, we just had a conference in October and it was a plenary session at this at this conference that I organized. And we had faculty from New York State, uh, New Jersey, Jackson State um, in, the, in the South, and um, Sonoma State, California, and what we and, and Ohio State. And what and, and really that that particular seminar, we were focusing on how can you best manage rights of ways for pollinators? And some of the simple things that came out of the seminar was that if you can have high cover of forbs and forbs are th- anything that blooms that that's not a grass. Okay, and I keep talking about goldenrod, but goldenrod's a great example. Asters are a great example. Things like Queen Anne's lace, which is a naturalized plant, are really good examples of that. If you can increase your cover of forbs, you will increase your native pollinator um, communities. We, we see that across all sites. Um, so th- these other sites where they're doing this type of research are very new. They don't have 60 years of work. But some of their beginning, their, their initial conclusions are similar to what we see at State Gatenlands 33. Selective integrated vegetation management is best for maintaining and initiating those forb communities that are, are necessary for pollinator, for high pollinator diversity. And um, it requires training and commitment. And one of the biggest problems all of us as researchers have is the disconnect between theory and practice. So in theory, on our protected research plots, we know that selective integrated vegetation management, the use of herbicides, for example, to remove non-compatible plants, works. When we go out outside of our research plots, we all have stories of people coming in and saying they're doing integrated vegetation management when really all they're doing is moving from a mowing regime to a high herbicide, non-selective spraying regime, which removes all plants. That is not that is not what we are talking about. We're talking about professionals who can identify plant communities applying herbicides very selectively on a several-year rotation. So that disconnect between theory and practice, we see at all of our study sites. But the one commonality is that this effort to increase forb cover, flowering plant cover, will increase native pollinators. And it works through targeted, selective, integrated vegetation management. Is a practice in which you can achieve that type of habitat. So tell us who your sponsors are okay, first. I will. I'm very partners. happy to talk about the sponsors. So the p- sponsors of the research are First Energy. And First Energy has a lot of subsidiary uh, companies um, as part of it, one of which is PICO in the southeastern part of Pennsylvania. We also work with um, Asplunt, which has really been the leader in this project since the 1950s. The Asplunt family has been involved in this research in one level or another. 
And we're also working with Corteva AgriSciences. Um, we use many of their herbicide products when we do the selective herbicide application. I do want the people listening to this to understand that at Penn State, Penn State University, we measure the response to the management. We do not do the management. So the management is overseen and paid for by these industry research partners. We, the Penn State researchers, measure the response to that. So those are the, those are the current um, partners right now. We're also working, Phil, with the Tree Fund, who they are helping us um, kind of manage the funding so that the industry funding can get managed into a particular account at the Tree Fund, which is a nonprofit organization. And then they work, they work between Penn State and industry to make sure that the funding happens each year. To be honest, as you move through the work from an ecological side, it's very interesting when I present the findings of our work at academic conferences versus industry conferences. Industry asks the questions, what is this going to cost? Why should we do it? What benefits will it get us? To be honest, academics are a little bit suspicious. They're a little bit suspicious that you're actually saying that herbicides can work. Um, are you and you and Corteva's funding you, and maybe Corteva's making you say that herbicides work? So there is that little bit of pushback that I sometimes get from ap- academic circles. But having said all of that, Penn State is very good at setting up agreements whereby, I, I, as a researcher, I direct the research and I put into those agreements the freedom to publish and to put our work into peer-reviewed journals. Nothing nothing is hidden and no one's ever asked me to hide anything. So were we able to present our work? What does that do for industry? Well, for industry, they might they, they seem to like like glossy brochures and, and PowerPoint slides. But to in reality, for industry to have credibility, the fact that our work is published in very good peer-reviewed journals and has been for 60 years gives them the credibility that they need because an internal document is not credibility to the public. So you, so that's, that's why, why I like working with industry. I like working with these particular partners in an industry. Um, I've never considered leaving academia because I think the fact that I'm in academia gives my work um, the weight that it needs to actually help industry. If I worked for industry and I did this research, I don't think it would have the same credibility, even though it might be exactly the same as it does with me being in academia. And I also like bringing students and I like getting students involved. And every year we've had undergraduates or graduate students involved with the project. And that's something that I truly enjoy. And I, I don't want to give that up. I have to say, I think some of my work and not just with students who worked on the project, but I also, I also work Um, I incorporate my research into my classroom. So I think I have expanded students' minds because a lot of students that go into ecology or environmental science, they're dreaming of working for the Nature Conservancy or the Park Service, not Corteva AgriSciences, (laughs) to be honest. But then when they see the research and they see the fact that that industrial lands make up a big part of our landscape, and, and the difference that they can make if they're managed properly, I think their, their mindset changes. So I try to introduce students, either through, through Zoom meetings, I'll have people come in and talk to the students from industry. 
Um, and I also have, now I have alums. Yes, I have mentored students that have graduated from Penn State and now are working for industry, not necessarily in the rights of way area, but I have students now that are working for pharmaceutical companies and helping them increase their sustainability footprint by how they buy plastics for you know, medicine bottles. Um, I have had a student, he did an internship with First Energy, and now he's working with the energy companies. Um, not necessarily in a direct environmental way, but but indirectly by improving their sustainability footprint. And and I've had students go on to work for several companies, including Sheets, which is located here in central Pennsylvania, to focus on how can ecology and environmental graduates graduates work directly with industry to improve environmental impacts from the industrial side. And it's been really rewarding. And those students have re- have made quite a bit of difference in the respective industries in which they work. I don't know if I told you this, Tesh, but Carolyn got her early start on Game Lands okay. with Dr. Burns. Burns I worked Bramble? with Bramble, yep. So that was one of the first okay. influences on me that made me want to do this project. One of my first rights away I was ever on was sitting real early in the morning with Dr. Bramble, listening for birds. And he could hear them, and I always (laughs) shook my head. Did he make that up? (laughs) No. (laughs) Birders are a unique group. Yes, yes, and we have, that's, aside from vegetation, vegetation, as far as data sets go, we have the longest data set on vegetation. So vegetation collection goes back to the late 1950s. The second longest is on breeding birds. We have data on breeding birds at State Game Lands 33 that go back to the early 1980s, I think 1981. And so we can look at changes in bird communities through time, species distributions, reproductive reproductive success. So we have a really nice data set on birds up on State Game Lands 33. Hmm. And most recently, the focus has been on pollinators. Yes. So what's next? Yes. So um, in 2016, we conducted a project looking at native bees. And I think most people are aware um, of the recent work that has indicated that pollinators are declining worldwide and they're declining very rapidly. And we're really we're not quite sure why. Part of it could be due to human Um, used chemicals, in particular insecticides that have been used um, to control agricultural pests, which are are sprayed often, maybe three times a month, for example, in certain um, crops. So insecticides, others changes in habitat. So pollinators have been declining very dramatically. So in 2016, um, we proposed here at Penn State that we study native pollinators and see can rights of ways, if managed properly, be good habitat for native pollinators? And, and indeed, we found them to be excellent habitat for native pollinators. We found two new state records of native bees. We found the occurrence of the golden bumblebee, which is recognized as a species that may be extinct in 60 years, but it's, it's doing quite well up on the rights of way on our um, selectively um, selective Integrated vegetation management plots is, is where those are found. So rights of way, if, if managed properly, can be good habitat for pollinators. So my research team presented that work, and we presented and published that work. And while we were presenting the work, we would also get we would often get questions from other academics who would ask, "Well, what's going on in the soil? 
maybe herbicides have been accumulating over time and the soil isn't very healthy. You know, just because you have the flowers and the bees are there, maybe the soil isn't doing well. So we propose to study ground beetles because they are really important and good, a viable indicator of soil health. And we started researching ground beetles in 20, during the pandemic, so 2020 was the first year we did those collecting, that, that collection. And right now we are in the process of identifying those species and looking at communities to see if there is has been an effect on herbicides on ground beetles. And, and initial data that is coming in indicates there has not been any effect of this integrated vegetation management treatment on the ground beetle community. Hmm. Well, going to be interesting to see years come. Yes, what, yes, very uh, interesting. You focus on and where that research goes. Yeah. And, and I do want to say, Phil, too, here, um, the, the research, obviously, this research is funded by industry, and there's particular objectives that industry has, you know, as far as, you know, what, what management approaches work best, can it be compatible with biodiversity, but I also want to make it clear that industry, through their funding, is supporting pure science. We have, as I said, we are finding really interesting information about distribution records in species of beetles and native bees that we did not know about. We're finding some interesting even results in some of the honeybees we've been collecting. So honeybees are not native to North America, but we still collect them on our study sites, and we're noticing some interesting um, anatomical differences in honeybees across the state. So even though that's not the objective of this research, some very good, pure science is coming out of our results. And we're really grateful for that on the, on the science side of things. Very good. You have a great website that people can see summaries. Yes. I don't know it offhand, but the easiest way to find our website is you just go into Google and you, t- you type in transmission ecology. Penn State. Just type that in and any search engine and our site will come up. All of our reports are there. All of our peer-reviewed publications are there. Um, summaries of the work that we have done in the past is there. So that's kind of the place where we're putting all our information. And very, very recently, Phil, I have been asked to expand our work onto um, gas and oil rights of ways, which are managed differently than transmission lines for electricity. And so we're going to be initiating a project this summer with Shell on a um, pipeline right of way down by Pittsburgh. And they are permitting us to set it up as an ex- as a replica of State Gamelands 33, where we'll take two miles of gas transmission rights of way, divide it up into different treatments and look at wildlife responses to those treatments. Carolyn, you gave us your website. Um, are you willing to have people interested in your research or replicating your research reach out to you directly? Yes. Yeah, so, Phil, that would be great. Um, on my website is my email address. So it's, it's publicly available. If, if you just type in Carolyn Mahan, Penn State, you'll find my email address. So, yes, people may re- reach out to me if they have specific questions, and they may have questions about how to get a, pro- a research project like this started. I also have faculty um, research colleagues around the country that um, are doing similar work. Some of their projects are just getting started, but I can also connect industry with researchers in other parts of the country as well if, if people are interested in that. So people should not be uh, shy about reaching out to me directly. Very well, good. Carolyn, I want to thank you for your time. 
very much appreciate it. Excited to see you again. Oh, you too, Phil. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the Trees and Lines podcast, brought to you by Iapetus Infrastructure Services. If you like the show, please give us a rating of five stars on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.